Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the shake-up in the Republican New Hampshire primary race, with Chris Christie dropping out without endorsing any of his rivals left in the race, in particular Nikki Haley, who is most likely to benefit from his withdrawal, given that her best hope not to be completely crushed by Trump is to win in New Hampshire. Joining us is Arnie Anderson, a talk radio show host based in Concord, New Hampshire, whose news talk public affairs show is The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Originating in Concord, New Hampshire, her show is picked up by the Pacifica Network and is heard on stations from Maui to Michigan and Houston to Harrisburg. She was selected in October 2018 as the best public affairs show by the New Hampshire Association of Broadcasters. Then, with Trump testifying today in closing arguments in the New York fraud case, next door in the same courthouse, another trial is underway, which could end up putting the once politically powerful NRA out of business. Joining us is Mike Spies, the reporter whose investigation led New York Attorney General Letitia James to sue the NRA and its leader, Wayne LaPierre, in 2020. He has produced numerous high-impact investigative projects focusing on the gun lobby, including a series that revealed widespread self-dealing at the National Rifle Association. A finalist for the Al Newharth Innovation in Investigative Journalism Award, the series led to the New York Attorney General Letitia James's lawsuit seeking to dissolve the NRA and her office's ongoing attempt to hold its leadership accountable. Spies has also earned the New York Press Club Award for continuing coverage and in 2017 was recognized as a finalist for the Livingston Award. We will discuss his article at Trace, co-published with ProPublica, Secret Recordings Show NRA Treasurer Plotting to Conceal Extravagant Expenses Involving Wayne LaPierre. Then finally we will speak with Joshua Green, the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump and the Storming of the Presidency, a national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek and a CNN political analyst. Previously, he was an editor at The Atlantic and The Washington Monthly and a political columnist for The Boston Globe. And his latest book just out is The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Struggle for a New American Politics. We'll examine the history of why the Democrats got into bed with Wall Street and the counter-revolution underway within the party to return it to its working and middle-class roots. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Arnie Arneson, who is a radio talk show host based in Concord, New Hampshire, whose news talk public affairs show is The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Her show originates in Concord, New Hampshire, but is picked up by the Pacifica Network and is heard on stations from Maui to Michigan, Houston to Harrisburg. And she was selected in October of 2018 as the best public affairs show by the New Hampshire Association of Broadcasters. Welcome to Background Briefing. Annie Arnenson. And actually, I'm a politician in recovery, having run for governor in Congress in 92 and 96 with Bill and Hillary. So if nothing else, I understand the world of politics as much as the world of radio. Well, as a recovering politician, (laughs) uh, is Chris Christie going to recover from his withdrawal uh, from the New Hampshire Republican primary last night? Oh, absolutely. And, and this, is, this, is, this is the real Chris Christie. And I've been following Chris for a long time. And remember back in, what was it, 2012, 2013, when Hurricane Sandy hit? 
And Chris Christie was seen walking the shores of New Jersey with Barack Obama and thanking Barack Obama for all the help. And he got all this raft of you know what, from Republicans going, how can you do this? How can you do this? And basically what he reminded them was, guess what? Barack Obama delivered for New Jersey. I don't regret anything I did with him. I may not agree with him on policy. I may not agree with him on so many issues. But in the end, we both saw the devastation and we knew that we needed to work together because that's what we are elected to do, to help and to respond. And that's the Chris Christie I remember with Barack Obama. And you saw sort of a, a version of that uh, the other night. And I, I, I think that's really what he was there to do. And he was there not to endorse a Nikki, not to endorse a Ron DeSantis or a Donald Trump, because basically his message was none of the above. So will it or is it helping his withdrawal, helping Nikki Haley? Um. So a lot of my friends have been calling me, asking me exactly the same question. And they said, isn't Nikki really Christie light? And I said, no, no, you've got it wrong. She's MAGA polite. Let me repeat that. She is not Christie light. She is MAGA polite. Because what Chris Christie stood for is he realized that Donald Trump was toxic. He realized he was unfit for office. He would never, ever have, if he had ever gotten elected, he never would have given him a, a pass after the election. He understood that he does damage to democracy and he's damaging to the state. Well, when you hear both Nikki and you hear Ron DeSantis, they basically genuflect to Donald Trump. There is nothing they will really do to actually sort of touch him or tarnish him. And that means that they are not in the mode of a Chris Christie, they're basically sort of, you know, being in the shadow of Donald Trump, and they show their fear of Donald Trump. And we don't need people fearing Donald Trump to basically sort of pass the torch from Chris Christie. If you want to do something on the Republican ballot, then do me a favor. Why don't you write in Joe Biden? Not because you like Joe Biden, because how do you spell democracy in New Hampshire? You spell democracy B-I-D-E-N. That's ultimately what you have to do. Chris Christie had no choice on the with the Republicans that are running. That's why he didn't endorse, and there was a message there. So already, according to a poll that came out in Thursday, on Thursday from the Emerson College and WHDH New Hampshire, has Trump at 44% among Republican primary voters, down from 49% in November, and Haley is at now at 28%, up from 18%. In November, so she's gained a ten-point mm -hmm. boost overnight for, uh, mm -hmm. since Christie has mm -hmm. left. So does that since mean Christie that she's got a left? chance? No, that what, what? Wait a minute. Are you telling me she was she went to a twenty-eight percent after Christie left the race, or she went from eighteen percent to twenty-eight percent at the same time that Christie left the race? Because let's let's remember, Governor Sununu has been basically running around endorsing her, doing everything possible. The other thing you have to understand here is this is a state where the Kochs have tremendous influence. Americans for Prosperity and the Koch uh, Network has endorsed Nikki Haley. They have spent millions, let me repeat this, millions of dollars in order to basically knock on doors, create this uh, idea that there's a grassroots campaign for Nikki Haley, which I don't think there really is. I think it's more astroturf. So when you combine the fact that Nikki tries to package herself as something not as toxic as Donald Trump, although when you follow her policies through, they are, when you recognize that the Democratic Party made a stupid decision by not running a primary in New Hampshire, but starting with South Carolina, there has been no ability to really define Nikki as who she is. She is not Christie Light. She is Magapolite. And when you play out all the things she does and says, that's what you understand, but nobody knows it, Ian. Nobody knows it. So she can wear her pearls, wear her pink dress, talk about her heels, somehow sound like a little more reasonable than a Donald Trump. But when you actually play out the policies, the policies are so similar, it'll make your head spin. So do you think then that the hot mic discussion that Chris Christie was having before he made his announcement uh, last night, do you think that was an accident where he trashed uh, what he said that that, that she's weak or whatever, whatever, that she'll uh, never, she'll never win, whatever, whatever. Yeah, he made, that she'll, he made she'll get right crushed or something. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so was that an accident or not? No, it was not an accident. Chris Christie is so smart. He's been around the block so many times. This was his way of basically delivering a message that I'm kind of delivering. She is not Christie light. She is not Christie light. She is not 
fit for this office. She is too weak. Her weaknesses can be seen in everything she doesn't do when it comes to trying to ultimately, you know, raise questions about Donald Trump. And, and I think that's really what this was about. This was planned. This was intentional. He's not handing it over to Ron DeSantis. Absolutely not. But he's basically messaging to people that might be supporting Chris Christie, don't think that Nikki is my substitute. She ain't. Yeah, and of course, DeSantis is sinking like a stone in Iowa, where he put all of his eggs in the Iowa basket. And isn't that true of Nikki Haley in New Hampshire? This is her, her make-or-break move, isn't it? Uh, it, it is, but let, let's do two things. Let's also talk about Iowa and New Hampshire. Iowa is a very traditional Republican primary state, which means that only Republicans can vote or you know, exercise the option in the caucus. In New Hampshire, it is undeclareds and Republicans that can pick up a Republican ballot. Right now, undeclareds are larger as a quote-unquote party than either Republicans or Democrats. They have a choice on the day of the primary. They can pick up either a Republican ballot or a Democratic ballot. There's no reason to pick up a Democratic ballot. First of all, who are you going to vote for? All right? I mean, you might write in Joe Biden, but even if you write it in, the DNC has already decided that your vote's not going to count. So a lot of undecided have decided to look and sort of shop around on the Republican side. Um, they, they could look at Trump. There's no question about it. There's a lot of undecided that still tend to lean more fascist anyway. Uh, or they could look at Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, or Chris Christie. And if you were a Chris Christie voter, and now he is no longer in the race, where do you go? I think Chris Christie, without endorsing Biden, because I don't think he should endorse Biden. It's not going to help him. Let me be honest here. But I think if you were with Chris Christie, then guess what? You probably should write in Joe Biden because it's a message to the Republicans that you believe in democracy, you respect the Constitution, and you don't want fascism as part of your future. The other thing that you should know is before um, we were we, we shut the door, about four thousand Democrats, four thousand decided to become undeclared. They switched their party from Democrat to undeclared. Now my question is, what am I going to tell those 4,000 to do? I'm going to tell those 4,000 they might have looked at Christie because they no way, shape, or form could imagine Donald Trump, or they might imagine Donald Trump because they think he's the weakest candidate. My suggestion to them is, don't touch Trump. Ron and Nikki are, are no difference. There's no difference in value. Do me a favor, write in Joe Biden because it'll send a powerful message to Republicans that there are still people that actually actually care what they care about exercising the franchise making sure that democracy survives and they don't want toxic waste in the white house and that's ultimately what donald trump will do and even if you think that biden could beat him don't run that risk so do you think at the end of the day chris christie might end up working for or at least endorsing uh, joe biden um i don't care <laughs> can i be honest with you because his speech was useful his speech was useful. What I would do is take that speech and I would cut it into a million ads and I would run them over and over again. You don't need him to put his hands on Joe Biden. What he did was imply the choices that we have going into the November election. And this really is a democracy choice. And it's not just about exercising the franchise and knowing your civics and caring about the Constitution. When you begin to understand where does democracy play out, democracy plays out in the economy. Democracy plays out in in women's bodily autonomy. Democracy plays out in the climate crisis. Democracy plays out in virtually every aspect of your life. Let him basically say that Trump and family, the rest of the, the other two that are left, are not good for our country or for democracy. Just use those words. He doesn't need to endorse Joe Biden. He kind of implied it, and that's all we need. So just in closing, though, the Koch brothers, or the Koch brother, the one that's left, yeah. is throwing yeah, his network, weight. Whatever they call it. Yeah. <laughs> he's throwing his weight behind Nikki Haley uh, and his money. So they're obviously their calculus is that in the general election, she has a better chance of beating uh, Biden than Trump, and they may be they're right. They're correct. Uh, oh, they're so, right. No, I think they are right. So then, are we then to basically to hope that Donald Trump? doesn't choke on a Big Mac before November? Oh, my God, yes. I, I wish I could just give him just, just drink the Diet Cokes and get rid of the Macs. You know, just drink the Diet Cokes. Uh, 
I am worried. I mean, that's one of the reasons why both Nikki and Ron want to be there. They want to be there in case something happens. And it's not that he's going to be a convicted felon. They want to be there in case something happens because his health isn't very good anyway. He doesn't take care of himself. A campaign is exhausting. And think about it. He has a campaign and how many indictments? Oh, my God, you and I would both have a heart attack, okay? And we're just normal, healthy human beings. And he starts out unhealthy. So I think because there are so many reasons to stay in the race, that's why they're there. That's why the Koch brothers or the Koch network is spending so much money on this race. They want to make sure that they keep somebody afloat. And in this case, they think it's Nikki Haley so that she is there at least until the convention. Because if she is there and something should happen, then they will have handpicked their candidate. You see, Nikki Haley isn't going to be about an election. It's going to be about a private placement by the Koch network. This is not your choice. This is not about grassroots. This is not about volunteers. This is about an AstroTurf campaign that's going to be spending millions and millions of dollars. They picked the candidate they want, and they're hoping that Donald Trump doesn't make it to November. So what should the Democrats do, just in closing? Um, the Democrats should be un- the Democrats should be messaging like crazy, and I hate to break it to you, but Joe Biden, listen to me. Two speeches are not a campaign. Two speeches are not a campaign. Can I, can I be honest with you, Ian? I didn't watch either one of them. I've read bits and pieces of them. I didn't watch them. They need to start running a real campaign, and that means ads, and that means bumper stickers, and that means, that means explaining and defining the other candidates, even the Nikki Haley's here. They need to run like their life depends on it because the country depends on it and they haven't started doing it and i don't know why i am frustrated but at the same time in part because they didn't start in new hampshire because they didn't start in iowa somehow they're going to start in south carolina as if that has any meaning it does not they need to be nimble and let's not forget ian when joe biden won um four years ago how did he win it was during the middle of the pandemic he didn't really have to campaign. He just sat in his car. Okay? I mean, let's remember, he doesn't, he's almost forgotten what that muscle feels like. Well, he needs to exercise a muscle that is atrophied, and the Democratic Party needs to help him. He is not the best messenger. Then figure out how to take the Chris Christie's, who's a fabulous messenger. Let's be honest, he's fabulous compared to Joe Biden. Then use his words, use his emotion, use his excitement about what the choice is in November, and basically use that voice and those kinds of messaging to get us through through November. This is not an election about Joe Biden. This is an election about whether we have a democracy going into the future. And I don't just mean the civics lesson. I mean every aspect of it. And as a female, I am terrified. And I want to make sure that every time something happens in Texas or Florida or Louisiana, that we make sure that every one of those women, every one of those stories gets played out. That's not a story about Joe Biden. That's a story about me, and I'm going to be voting in November, and I'm going to be bringing those women with me when I exercise the franchise. Well, Arnie Anderson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. And again, I'll be speaking with Arnie Anderson, who is a radio talk show host based in Concord, New Hampshire, whose news talk public affairs show is The Attitude with Arnie Anderson. And her show originates in Concord, New Hampshire, but is picked up by the Pacifica Network and is heard on stations from Maui to Michigan and Houston to Harrisburg. And she was selected in October 2018 as the best public affairs show by the New Hampshire Association of Broadcasters. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with a reporter whose investigation led New York Attorney General Letitia James to sue the NRA and its leader, Wayne LaPierre. Everybody loves cowboys and clowns. You're everybody's hero for just a little while. But when the goodbyes are said, the spotlight goes dead there's no one left who cares to hang around to love the cowboys and clowns welcome back i'm ian masters and this is background briefing available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is mike spies who's a senior staff writer at the trace He has produced numerous high-impact investigative projects focusing on the gun lobby, including a series that revealed widespread self-dealing at the National Rifle Association, a finalist for the Al Newharth Innovation in Investigative Journalism Award. The series led to the New York Attorney General Letitia James' lawsuit seeking to dissolve the NRA and her office's ongoing attempt to hold its leadership accountable. 
Spies has also earned a New York Press Club Award for continuing coverage, and in 2017 he, recogni- he was recognised as a finalist for the Livingston Award. He has an article at Trace, co-published with ProPublica, Secret recordings show NRA treasurer plotting to conceal extravagant expenses involving Wayne LaPierre. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike Spice. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And given that today in New York, Trump was testifying in closing arguments in the New York fraud case, right next door in the same courthouse, uh, there's another trial underway which could end up putting the once politically powerful NRA out of business. So how do you feel about being overshadowed by Donald Trump, who today insulted the judge, attacked uh, Letitia James, uh, and was told by the judge to to essentially to shut up and stop making a campaign speech? I do think it's incredible the two things are happening next door to each other, because in some ways you could almost see them as, and they are actually two sides of the same coin, Trumpism wouldn't really be possible without the agitprop that was created by the NRA over a period of decades. So it's it's really all kind of the same thing in some ways. So let's talk about how you got Letitia James to sue the NRA in 2020. Well, um, I mean, she what I mean, it was I would less that I, I got her to than so much that she was prompted by my reporting. And that was based on uh, my getting a hold of a number of internal and counting documents that had raised a host of questions about various financial arrangements that had been in uh, force in the NRA for, you know, 30 years. And that had to do with, you know, bloated, con- super bloated contractors for insiders that didn't really involve any work uh, other sweetheart arrangements, uh, various like luxury expense abuses, using uh, contractors to obfuscate personal spending, private jets, uh, yachts, the Bahamas, um, all that stuff was revealed like over the course of the reporting at first with like a very large story and then with a bunch of follow-ups. Um, and, and of course, because the NRA is domiciled here in New York as a result of it having been formed after the Civil War, um, it was sort of, I guess, a, a ripe target for the New York Attorney General. Um, you, you know, obviously, I think anyone want in that position is thinking about big cases and wanting to head off any kind of perceived corruption and the National Rifle Association, which has historically been so divisive and provocative, you know, it's just sort of it's kind of fell into her lap, I suppose. Well, originally uh, you were working, obviously, uh, with The Trace in partnership with The New Yorker and later right. with ProPublica, right? And uh, mm-hmm. so then... When did you get first get wind of uh, something was wrong at the NRA? Was that when Oliver North had his had his uh, spat with Wayne LaPierre when he was North was appointed the president, and then he apparently quickly understood that there was an awful lot of self dealing and corruption. Well, you know that actually came later, and, and in fact, North's big pronouncement, you know, where he sort of publicly took that on, came after the first story came out but in actuality i first started looking at the nra back in 2015 uh, and it was pretty slow going and a really difficult beat or not to crack and then over time even in the first year as i started to develop you know sources and people like who at least were a little bit familiar with the inner workings of the organization the thing everybody talked about was the business and issues with contracts specifically like major vendors and their connections to executives and how money was flowing. Um, but there were just, there was for the longest time, there was just no way to corroborate any of the allegations that people were privately making to me. Um, and then that started to change in 2017 because the organization as it continued to grow and need to grow. And also as it continued to lose money because of these various spending arrangements, 
what it, it was always looking for new vehicles for revenue. And in 2017, the, 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 you know, the new shiny object was creating this thing called carry guard, which was self-defense insurance, which was to say, you know, if that's not clear what that is, that's insurance you buy in the event that you shoot somebody, the insurance will be there to cover your legal costs. It was sort of an insane idea. And it naturally in the state of New York did not pass legal muster and created like the NRA's first major financial headache. Um, and once that happened, that prompted NRA accountants to like revisit other longstanding arrangements and, and it sort of sent them on a fact finding mission and, and over, you know, very quickly. In fact, they, they began to discover that there was a lot of stuff that was happening that was clearly not above board and was not in compliance with uh, nonprofit law in the state of New York and even, I suppose, federally. Um, and uh, as those efforts moved along, there was there was definitely pushback um, and that prompted some of the frustration and I think ultimately resulted in, you know, my getting a portion of those documents for the first story. But you also apparently got the, the secret recording, which shows the NRA yep. treasurer plotting to conceal extravagant expenses involving Wayne LaPierre. So uh, without getting into your sources, the, at least one of the executives, I think a former treasurer, has turned state's evidence, hasn't he? I'm sorry, what was the last thing you said about evidence? I said, has, hasn't he turned state's evidence? Isn't he working? Uh, oh, the state, no, no. What is not that one of so one of the defendants so that there are the NRA is a defendant in the trial and then uh, several current and former executives and one of the former executives Josh Powell did uh, enter into a deal with the state AG but the person that is involved in the recording Woody Phillips who's also a defendant uh, has not entered into any kind of plea agreement and he was the organization's longtime CFO and treasurer. Um, and he's the person who's representing the organization in that recording. And it's him in a room with two executives from the NRA's longtime PR firm, Macaroon McQueen, and then conferenced in on a video call is Macaroon McQueen's chief financial officer, Bill Winkler. And, well, in some respects, it was known through stuff that began to come out in the AG's complaint and elsewhere that the NRA had been using Ackerman McQueen to like pass through expenses that it wanted to keep off its books. It was still not the same as actually being able to hear that arrangement be set up in real time. And that's what the recording provides. And it also shows that it happened because the NRA made it happen because Woody asked the firm to help create an arrangement that would basically protect or shield a portion of expenses, luxury expenses involving Wayne LaPierre from view, uh, from, from view from anyone basically outside the small group of people who knew about it, which is to say the board was in the dark. Everyone else at the NRA was in the dark. Auditors were in the dark. Uh, the IRS was in the dark. I mean, there are no, everybody, um, it's quite shocking, you know, to actually hear them even order this platinum American express card on the telephone for this NRA executive and, and establish that they would be billing the organization back for these expenses involving limousines and fancy hotels under invoices that have or had no details. So what's interesting, isn't it, though, Mike, that Wayne Lapierre himself seemed to recognize that what he was doing was unacceptable, that these these staying in these fifteen hundred dollar a night hotels like the Beverly Hills Hotel and others, which she seemed to favour, shopping in Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, and taking private jets, picking up his niece on the way in Nebraska, etc. He seemed to know that there was something wrong with that, or at least it was very he was very vulnerable to that being exposed. So they set up this mechanism through the PFM Ackerman McQueen to kind of launder this corruption, right? I mean, he was certainly, you know, Woody on, in the recording in the meeting never expressly says why they're doing it. 
and, and testimony from LaPierre and the executive who was receiving the American Express card, they both said that this was done for confidentiality and security reasons, though confidentiality or specifically security is not mentioned at all in the meeting. But it is also true that Wayne was hyper aware of optics, and that becomes clear in the meeting when they discuss specifically what he discusses Wayne's desire to not be seen getting off a private jet anywhere and wanting to basically avoid having to disclose that he was using one on the organization's tax filings. And that, that, that speaks to what you're talking about, which is, yes, there was, there was absolutely, there was concern, I think, at least according to these folks on his part about how some of this stuff would look, especially when, you know, your persona to your members and the public is that of like a, you know, populist firebrand every man. Right. And he's getting money from gun rights supporters out there who aren't necessarily the wealthiest people in America under the umbrella of a tax exempt charity, right? Which has right. rules. Right. That's so right. he's justifying his frequent stays on a hundred foot yacht in the Bahamas as a security measure? Correct. That's, a, that's exactly what he did to justify them. And actually, in another story that I had done, um, it came out where I discovered that on one of the yachting trips to the Bahamas, or one of the trips where he was on a yacht in the Bahamas, it was, he, they were there because it was a special trip where his niece was getting married at a, at, like at a, at a resort on Atlantis. Um, and that had never, obviously that had not been disclosed in any of the sworn testimony or, or elsewhere. So it raises the question of course, about security and you know, what, what were you really doing there? Was it because security and you needed to get out of Dodge because you felt like your life was in danger or because you had a contractor who gave you access to a yacht and your niece was getting married. This was an opportunity to have very sort of, you know, fancy, quiet, nice event. Uh, I don't, you know, can't answer, can't tell you the answer, but, it, but, it, but, you know, it was, it does raise the question about whether or not security was the real reason they were there. So this is a, an organization, as you mentioned, uh, Mike, that the NRA that was formed, when was it? Like 1871, wasn't it? after the Civil uh, War, to improve marksmanship of Union soldiers? That's right. Yeah, right after the Civil War. And uh, it's had a massive political impact. It's been a, a real power in terms of its money uh, lobbying and in spite of incessant, almost daily mass shootings in this country, the NRA has largely been uh, able to prevent any meaningful gun safety and gun control laws from passing. I mean, that's a a fair statement, isn't it? It is a fair statement. Yeah, I mean, even even with their power at a Nader right now, uh, its influence will forever be felt by virtue of the success that it had for so many years at re-socializing a large portion of Americans into viewing the Second Amendment in the way that they do um, and that's not, you know, I'm not sure that that's something you can undo. I don't think it, I don't think it is. I mean, at this point, the amount of guns that are in circulation have reached, I don't know, what is it like half a billion, some, some huge number like that. Uh, the way people, most states now don't require you to acquire a permit to carry a handgun, which means you can just, if you can buy it in the store, you can walk out with it and bring it anywhere. Um, it's a very different climate and a very different world because of the NRA. And, and I should say that, you know, for most of its existence, it was not a political organization really, or at least primarily was not concerned with politics and was concerned with sporting and hunting. And it was really only in the mid to late seventies that it was overtaken by, I guess you could call activists who wanted the organization to be political. Uh, and the old guard that was concerned with sporting and hunting was all pushed out. So a lot of the success that it's had 
and much of the change, much of the change that it brought to the world happened in a pretty short period of time. When you think about it, it was really only, you know, over four, three and a half to four decades. So just in closing though, Mike, uh, it looks as if this case in New York will put the NRA out of business, but already it's being eclipsed by even more right-wing sort of Second Amendment fundamentalist organizations like Gun Owners of America, isn't it? Well, two things. One, I'm not, it's, you know, the, the AG, one thing the AG wanted to do in terms of petitioning the judge was put the organization out of business. Uh, and the judge said no to that, said there's not, you know, the executives can be penalized, but shutting the organization down as a whole is like a bridge too far. Doesn't mean that the effects of this will not ultimately, uh, you know, I, I've heard, many people have heard, I don't know if it's true or not, that the organization is genuinely veering on bankruptcy. I don't know if that is the case, but I know that they've obviously been bleeding a ton of money and have been bringing in a, a lot less revenue than they have traditionally. So uh, they've, you know, lost a lot of members, more than a million of them in, in recent years. And, and uh, you know, its, its future is definitely not guaranteed. But... Um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to, what was your, and the, and oh, the other, other one is America. That, yes. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, those groups, you know, go, well, interestingly, Gunners America has been around, you know, for, I think at least since the seventies, a lot of the other groups are relatively new and, and, you know, they don't, it's not that they're without capital, but they're, they're nowhere near the size that the NRA even is now. Uh, you know, it's, we're, I think GOA, I haven't looked in a while, but, you know, I believe it still has less than a million members, perhaps even less than half a million. Um, in terms of like the machines and the machinery that got built up, I mean, the NRA is a beast. Yeah, multiple divisions, all kinds of infrastructure produces and puts on these huge events. I mean, it's not really... None of those groups are anywhere near getting to that level yet. And it's not to say that they couldn't, um, but, but it would, it would take a long time for them to be able to have a brand that meant what the NRA means and to have the institutional capabilities and that infrastructure that I was saying, you know, that, that gets, that's something that gets built up over like a very long time with huge monetary investments and, um, they're not there yet. However, I mean, the flip side is that the, the landscape has changed. Like in the wake of the, the Supreme Court's Bruin decision in which the justices basically said that the constitutionality of regulations can only be judged based on history and tradition as opposed to their public safety efficacy has meant in principle that the most significant aspects of this debate are going to play out in courts, not like in legislatures or in Congress. So in some ways, these smaller organizations, you know, are much leaner. They're probably never going to have anything like the following that the NRA had, but they may be just as effective because the landscape has narrowed so much and, and the, you know, they can be way more targeted, which is to say, in what, which is what they're doing. They're just, they're just filing endless lawsuits to overturn, you know, laws and restrictions around the country. Thanks to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark Spies, I think you... Court. Well, Mark Spies, I thank you very much for joining us. Well, oh, thank you so much for having me. And again, I mean, speaking with Mark Spies, who's a senior staff writer at The Trace, he has produced numerous high-impact investigative projects focusing on the gun lobby, including a series of revealed series that revealed widespread self-dealing at the National Rifle Association, a finalist for the Al Newharth Innovation in Investigative Journalism Award. The series led to the New York Attorney General Letitia James's lawsuit seeking to dissolve the NRA and her office's ongoing attempt to hold its leadership accountable. Spies has also earned a New York Press Club Award for continuing coverage and in 2017 was recognized as a finalist for the Livingston Award. And he has an article at Trace co-published with ProPublica, Secret Recordings Show NRA Treasurer Plotting to Conceal Extravagant Expenses Involving Wayne LaPierre. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back 
examining the history of why the Democrats got into bed with Wall Street and the counter-revolution underway within the party to return it to its working and middle-class roots. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Joshua Green, the author of the number one New York bestseller, Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency, a national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek and a CNN political analyst. Previously, he was an editor at The Atlantic and The Washington Monthly and a political columnist for The Boston Globe. And his latest book just out is The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the struggle for a new American politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joshua Green. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Joshua. And clearly, you've written about uh, the capture of the Republican Party by the far right, Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, etc. And uh, your new book is essentially about uh, how the Democratic Party was captured, in effect, by Wall Street, and there's a counter-revolution underway. But just to touch on the state of the Republican parties, given the CNN debate last night between two of the three candidates left in the race, and that was counter-programmed by Donald Trump on CNN at a town hall. If you could describe a rebellion amongst Democrats, what <laughs> what would you describe as going on amongst Republicans? Well, I'd say the the the, the Republican the rebellion among Republicans is over and has been a complete and total victory for Donald Trump. Uh, you can see it in his town hall last night, but you could also see it in the DeSantis-Haley debate where uh, none of them dared really challenge Donald Trump and they seem to be sort of you know, bickering for second place. Um, but I, I think we're going to find out as soon as Monday night at the Iowa caucuses that this remains Trump's uh, Republican Party uh, and that no serious challenger uh, is going to emerge this year. And the fact that Trump has said that he, he wants the economy to tank in order to, order to hurt <clears throat> Biden. And last night on Fox, he was pretty gleeful about the idea that he made $8 million out of foreign countries, many of them adversaries, during his a time in the Oval Office in the White House, that would sink most politicians, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, ironically, you know, Trump is always very transparent about what, what he's thinking in a way that makes him much easier to cover. <laughs> and, and I think the line about the economy tanking in particular um, shows what he's really worried about and that, that, that he believes that his own vulnerability uh, is going to be the rising economy that Joe Biden has presided over. And, you know, if you're if you're an incumbent president like uh, Joe Biden and you're running with an economy that's growing, where unemployment is down, stock market is up, consumer sentiment is turning around, that, that, that's pretty much the morning in America, you know, scenario that Ronald Reagan had in 1983, 1984, and that Joe Biden is hoping for uh, in November. And, and if you're Donald Trump, that's cause for concern. Let's now turn to your new book, The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the struggle for a new American politics, uh, Joshua Green, which in effect, the transition towards, away from uh, working class and union money, I guess. If you if you take the premise that our, our politics are money-driven, which they appear to be, with our, our legislators essentially telemarketers who spend most of their days dialing for dollars, given that reality... It was the shift to Wall Street due to the fact that union money was drying up and the Democratic bosses, if that's the right description, decided that we got to go to Wall Street? Yeah, I, I think that's fundamentally correct. I mean, the, the book is about the, the rise of left populism since the 2008 financial crisis. But in order to understand that deeper history, uh, we have to go back to the period you're alluding to. Uh, I actually start the book in Jimmy Carter's White House 
1978, which 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 I submit in the book was when Wall Street first sunk its claws into the Democratic Party. And the reason was, as you'd said, that for decades, Democrats had depended on organized labor, uh, both for votes and for money to fund the Democratic Party. But by the late 70s, labor was in decline. Unions didn't have as much manpower. They certainly didn't have as much money. And American politics was moving on to the age of television. We saw that with the rise of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Uh, Democrats knew they needed money from somewhere to be able to compete in this new medium. Uh, And in the early 1980s, they turned to Wall Street. And specifically in the case of Carter, he wanted to unrig the tax code, right? But he was overwhelmed uh, by the decision the power of the lobbying and donor class. That's right. I mean, the book the book opens with a, a sort of uh, poignant and and somewhat sad uh, battle. Uh, you know, Jimmy Carter came into office as a kind of Southern populist who uh, announced that he was uh, morally offended by the nature of the tax code and the way it slanted toward rich people. And that he was going to zero it out, do away with the capital gains tax that, that that favored Wall Street, and rewrite the tax code in a way that was fair for ordinary people in the working class. And the story in this first chapter is the story of how Carter got rolled uh, by his own party due to the rising influence of Wall Street, which not only killed uh, Carter's tax bill, but rewrote it in a way uh, that leaned the tax code even further toward Wall Street. And, and I submit in the book, set us on the path uh, and lit a fuse uh, that eventually led to the 2008 financial crisis. But I think the, the most significant thing that happened in the transition from Carter to Reagan was mm-hmm. prior to Carter, the U.S. had a savings-based economy. And starting with Reagan, it shifted to a credit-based economy. And in effect, credit was used to maintain the illusion that your standard of living was increasing. Whereas the only time we ever had any savings was recently during COVID. Is mm-hmm. that a, a valid observation? Yeah, it is. And, and the way I grapple with it in the book is that, you know, after Carter's loss, uh, the Democratic Party reacted with fear and panic. And the rising generation of ambitious Democratic candidates after that decided um, that the worst thing they could do was to resemble Jimmy Carter and his politics in any way, shape and form. And so what many of them did uh, was to embrace a a kind of pro-business, even supply side brand of politics that was market driven, deferred to the free market. Uh, it, it was a version of Ronald Reagan's supply side economics, but it really took a hands off approach to financial regulation and bent over backwards to not just uh, cut cut rich people's taxes and businesses, um, but but spend in a way that did did depend on debt and, and did lead to these problems many years later. So let's turn to the big turning point, which was the congressional negotiations over the 2008 Trouble Asset Relief uh, Program bailout, the top, Mm -hmm. after the 2008 crash, as Obama just came into office and Secretary Hank Paulson and Fed Chair Bernanke were sitting down with Speaker Pelosi presenting this kind of poison pill. Yeah, I mean, the... the the problem that the crash created in in the very short term was that it looked like the global financial system was going to collapse, and uh, in Democrat uh, in in the United States, politicians in both parties understood that Congress needed to do something. Uh, this was this happened during George W. Bush's administration, so uh, Republicans were in charge here. Uh, but the deal that they essentially struck with Pelosi and Democrats on the fly was that. Congress would pass uh, hundreds of millions, sorry, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in in bailout money. But in return, the Treasury would use its power to uh, rewrite underwater mortgages and do things to help the middle class. Uh, But within about a week or two uh, of that agreement, Paulson said it became clear that this just wasn't feasible, that they couldn't move quickly enough to save the economy from a Great Depression. So instead, they plowed that money into recapitalizing banks uh, and and middle class people were, were basically ignored. And if you look at the recovery, it was a long grinding period of austerity. It took seven years for America to recover the jobs lost in the 08 crisis. And it gave rise to a backlash, a populist backlash 
um, uh, that not only was evident on the right with the rise of the Tea Party and Donald Trump, but as I write about in The Rebels, um, produced a brand of left-wing populism that was initially led by Elizabeth Warren, who was its first major figure, um, but eventually carried over into Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign and into the new, younger generation of uh, left progressive Democrats that we see with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, and the group around her in the U.S. House. But I recall at the time of the top vote, that in effect it was the Democrats who voted for it and the Republicans voted against it. So was that the beginning? It seems like the Republicans were the ones that seemed to understand that there was something wrong with the biggest transfer of private debt into public debt in history where Main Street gets shafted and Wall Street, which caused the problem, gets rewarded. I, I think that's right. I mean, there were certainly Republicans who were in favor of the bailout. And one of the villains in, in my book is Mitch McConnell, who helped to pass the, the original bailout, the Troubled Asset Relief Program under George W. Bush and declared it one of his proudest achievements as a senator. Uh, but then once Barack Obama got elected and there was a Democratic president in the White House, uh, turned around, turned against the TARP and tried to basically starved the Obama administration from being able to use that money. Uh, and, you know, we've seen that trend continue also in Republican politics to what we have today, which is sort of a nihilistic Republican Party, both in the House and the Senate, that can barely govern and now looks as though it might be barreling toward another government shutdown. So history would have been different, don't you think, if Obama would have taken on Wall Street from the beginning? I, I think it was. I mean, I go into so, some detail about the history of why Obama chose to do what he did. Uh, I was embedded at the time uh, reporting with Timothy Geithner, his Treasury Secretary. And Obama and Geithner had a plan. And there was a reason that they bailed out the Wall Street banks. And it wasn't because they were corrupt. It was because they thought that that was the quickest way to get the U.S. economy back to growth and that that growth uh, would trickle down and revive ordinary working people who'd whose lives had been upended by the crisis. And it, it, it didn't work out that way from the standpoint of most Americans who were deeply unhappy uh, with the way the bailout proceeded, the fact that Obama was so hands-off on Wall Street, because he had to be. He believed that that confidence in the banks would determine um, the fate of the U.S. economy um, from, a, from a kind of cold economic financial perspective that might have made some sense. Uh, but from a political and a kind of moralistic standpoint, it really didn't. And, you know, my argument in the book is that the crisis, the, the financial crisis of, of 08 and its aftermath was the defining political event in modern U.S. history. And, you know, we saw from the aftermath all the way through the election of Donald Trump and his administration that the, the aftershocks from that earthquake continue to this day. Well, you also, your book describes how the Obama White House tried to basically kill off Elizabeth Warren, who was lobbying for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which has been under attack since it was ever founded. And she got her revenge by running for the Senate and getting elected. And then in 2010, Senator Bernie Sanders, who you also profile, delivered an eight and a half hour filibuster speech on the Senate floor in protest to Obama's craven extension of the George W. Bush tax cuts. So if 2008 was a, was a necessary evil, what was 2010? Anything but a giveaway to the rich? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it was the inevitable backlash that we saw beginning. I mean, I, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because I think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are such important historical characters, not just because they ran for president in 2020, but because they helped give rise to this brand uh, of left-wing populism that really hadn't existed in American politics uh, for decades before that crisis. If you go back to, uh, you know, Great Depression and, and Franklin Roosevelt's years, liberal, Democratic liberalism was very much uh, focused on financial regulation, the economy, the banks, um, and limiting their uh, predations. Um, but that began to fall, fall away in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, when the focus of liberalism turned to things like civil rights, women's rights, the environment, 
Uh, I think in the in the in the early two thousands, uh, the focus really was on the Iraq War, and so the idea that it was important to regulate markets and not to uh, embrace Wall Street bankers in the financial class uh, worldview of how an economy should be run really kind of fell into the background, and you saw all sorts of of, of people from Wall Street coming into Democratic administrations and serving at a high level. Yeah, and my argument is that really changed the nature of the Democratic Party. They took the crash and its aftermath um, for Democrats to be reminded that it's important to regulate Wall Street and finance. And what we've seen since then, this brand of populism, uh, has really grown up and reshaped the Democratic Party, uh, including, importantly, the presidency of Joe Biden. And of course, we forgot to mention that uh, it was President Bill Clinton who, in effect, caused or at least contributed to the 2008 crash by getting rid of the Glass-Steagall Act. But has anybody really, while all, all of what your book is focused on, meanwhile, I don't see a lot of attention on the very nature of the change of Wall Street to the extent that our US economy now is more and more essentially being financialized. You know, even the rubber barons, they produced goods and services when you make money out of money, it seems to me that this is insupportable. And I just wonder about whether or not there should be a focus on the on what seems to be a crisis in capitalism, where Wall Street has become more about extracting wealth than creating wealth. I mean, look at the current situation with the, uh, the 737 MAX. That's a case of a, a company that used to be run by aeronautical engineers, Boeing, mm -hmm and is now run by a numbers cruncher beholden to Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the way I, I, I think I grapple with this in the book is to look at what has happened since 2008. I mean, to me, that was sort of the high point of the financialization of the Democratic Party. And then we have seen positive changes since then. Uh, you know, I, I think some of them are this renewed focus on the, uh, on the middle class. And, and to me, uh, the most telling comparison is the response to the 08 financial crisis, which, as we've discussed, was focused uh, almost entirely on Wall Street, not on the middle class. Um, but then the bailout or the, the the response to the COVID crash in 2000, uh, first under Trump, but especially under Joe Biden, um, which not only had multiple rounds of stimulus um, focused mostly uh, on the middle class, uh, but also had the sorts of things that populist left politicians like Elizabeth Warren were, were calling on Barack Obama to do back in 2009, which, which Obama didn't do, uh, things like beefed up unemployment benefits and student loan forgiveness, eviction moratoriums, small business loans. You can see just in the nature of the way Biden talks about the response. I think his phrase is, uh, you know, we're building from the middle out. Um, how much the party's focus has shifted from deferring uh, to markets and encouraging financialization to steering things back more in a bit of a, a, a traditional democratic direction. I think you can also see that uh, in the renewal of organized labor and uh, the fact that uh, we're not just having uh, teachers, uh, teacher, successful teacher strikes, uh, the United Auto Workers strike, a lot of Folks in the media are now organizing. Uh, but the fact that Joe Biden, who for most of his Senate career was known as a friend of business, uh, was the first president, certainly in my lifetime, to go out and walk on a, on a UAW picket line a few months ago. Um, so I do think that, that the Democratic Party is steered back more in the direction of the working class. And I think that owes a great deal, uh, even though they're not generally accredited for it, uh, to Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders and AOC. Well, Joshua Green, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It was a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Joshua Green, the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Devil's Bargain, Stephen Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency, a national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek, and a CNN political analyst. Previously, he was an editor at The Atlantic and The Washington Monthly, and a political columnist for The Boston Globe. And his latest book just out is The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the struggle for a new American politics. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home One more life.